1: A small company called Popcorn Training. Um, we're a South African um, security awareness content publisher. And about two years ago we were acquired by Nobufor. So since the acquisition, we've now rebranded to Nobufor Africa. And I was responsible as the managing director for sort of the, you know, um the growth of the business into the African region and the continent. But since September, so it's brand new, I've got a new role. Um, it's a long American title, but uh, it stands for SVP for Content Strategy and Evangelist. And basically what that means in plain English is that I can do the things that I enjoy most doing, which is um, research and working on the content creation and um, yeah, doing a bit of brand awareness into the market and then leave the operational running of the business to our new MD, Grant for NICAP, who joined us a couple of months ago.
2: Yeah, and I must admit, it is very cool content. I mean, one of the so – we, so we became a, a customer of Nova 4 last year, um, and I don't know if it was because of you or, or something like that, but I uh, obviously listened to the Hacking Humans podcast where you were a guest, and I was looking at Nova 4 at the time, I think, and then when I heard it was South African-based content, I was like, well, we definitely have to look at this content. Um, and then we went through it, and it's a very nice Netflix-y experience to, to watch you know, information security stuff when I mean, compared to the, the sort of old way of, of many slides with many boring questions. Um, it's nice to watch, um, you know, a bit more animated material. Um, do you want, do you want to tell us a bit before we get into the sort of the nuts and bolts, of, you know, what the digital workspace means to you and, and how it applies in your, your vocation?
1: Yeah. Um, well first up that's really cool that you guys are number four, customer. It's awesome. <laughs> um, the digital workspace, I actually thought about that, you know, before the, our meeting and you know where we come from like you know working in in it i think we've been working digitally or virtually or in the digital workspace for the last 20 years already i mean it's quite the norm to work from home i mean i started my business as a complete virtual setup we didn't have an office everybody worked from wherever i had developers in Sedgefield, um, animators in south america and actually two of them who are back in south africa they moved to japan and we always work virtually um, using Slack and other sort of collaboration tools to, to chat and stay in, in contact. Um, it's only now since the, the number four acquisition that we had to like set up a proper office and bring people into the sort of real world. Um, and now obviously with COVID, that sort of through a spanner and works for everybody. And I think for people um, that have not had that kind of you know, IT background or, or upbringing in the IT space, it has been quite a, um, you know, new way of doing things. I mean, if I consider my husband, for example, they're in the white industry and they run a call center and he was so surprised that they could trust the call center agents to do the job from home. that He never suspected that would be possible, even though I've been, you know, um, talking to him for years that he should allow people to work from home more because it's just more practical um, COVID sort of showed it or uh, well, it, it, it proved that it is actually possible to trust people and that we have the tools and the technology to make it work. And it doesn't matter where you are physically. It,
2: it, there's, a of, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around COVID you know, being a manufactured virus and, and being sent out, sent out to do whatever it's doing. But I think may, and maybe this is what a new conspiracy theory, maybe the conspiracy theory was to get everyone to the same level of using technology. Um, cause you're right, most of the, yeah. around, you know, for years, decades, but, but it always, it was always left to the IT person and the family to try and get everyone to use Skype or, you know, when Skype was the big thing to do calls. And then, you know, and as, as the businesses have moved on to new things and, you know, Skype for business, then you now got teams and you have got zoom. Um, there's always this disconnect between what you do as a family per se, versus what you did in your corporate life. Um and almost oh, that frustration, okay. like, oh, why are we using Skype? Skype's terrible. You know, we should be using um Zoom or, or whatever it is. Now everyone's using Zoom or Teams or um whatever it is. And I think something you mentioned about trust. Um and, and it's quite ironic considering you're doing specific information security background. Um, that I think has been the biggest problem with allowing people to work anywhere has been can we trust them to work? Um, and specifically around exactly. working in a coffee shop potentially with, with sensitive information. how is that driven? Well how is it changing your content approach maybe um, when you when you look at that
1: yeah I mean a lot of the the content that we create is obviously you know it, it's targeted at end users that are typically in a corporate environment, so you know we cover sort of the basic things such as um how to spot social engineering or phishing attacks um, data protection, and a lot of it is you know more the traditional kind of way um and you know, if you now take people out of the office environment where they might have somebody sitting next door to them to kind of ask, you know, hey, is this legit or not? That that is a challenge that um, you know, we had to address by making the content more specific around, hey, you know at home. And specifically within the, the the this pandemic phase, what also happens is that people, um, even the ones that have you know worked from home before, um we, we sort of tap into a collective kind of anxiety and that makes us as humans, unfortunately more vulnerable to people, hackers or social engineers because they mm. abuse that, you know, like what happens is if we are stressed or anxious and we use our heuristic thinking mode and that makes us, you know, much more sort of quick and, and more reactive. So if you get something while you're in the stressed mode and we all, even the security people, we all, uh, you know, relate to that. Like if you're stressed out or if you have your kids screaming in the background, um you may just click on that thing that you wouldn't have clicked yeah. you know otherwise, or um, hand out information that you would have thought you know with your slow thinking mind or your sort of critical thinking mind and and that is something that we had to kind of build into the the training content more to make people aware of their own psychological vulnerabilities, I guess, while they're working from home.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that. I mean, I, yeah. my wife had a go me the other day, so we were sitting having dinner and we live in a new, like, little complex, not like a South African complex where everything's closed off, but like you know, seven houses, yeah. private road. And, and was, I, when I'd driven home, I'd seen this, this woman walking door to door and young girls, so, you know, student, whatever. And in the UK, when you, when you come to the charity, they carry a badge and a clipboard and all that kind of stuff. So you can sort of validate who they are. And I'd seen her walking and we were having dinner and, and she obviously got to our section. And while we were having dinner, this thunderstorm erupted because we've had a lot of hot weather here. So just, you know, the rain coming down and and the doorbell rang and I went and opened the door and I, and I sort of just and she gave me her spiel. And, and I said, look, we're not really interested. We're having dinner right now. I said, look, it's really wet. I like, can you give me some, some a towel to wipe my iPad down? And I said, no no problem. And I walked back to the kitchen and, and get this, the towel and came back and she went, and then my wife turned and said, "You're a security and You let someone stand in your doorway with the door open with an iPad for three minutes. Yeah, she could have cased the house." And I was like, "You're so right. I hadn't even thought about that because at home you're so comfortable and so relaxed. You know, all those things are exactly firing off the spider senses.
1: Yeah, exactly. Your spider senses. That that's a, a good way. And." and there's also a lot of profiling that happens, you know, like you look at, and, and as women, we, we, you know, in social engineering, you, you take advantage of that. You know, if you you put a pillow under your tummy and pretend you're a pregnant woman and everybody will open the door for you, you know, because that's we're be polite, you know, yeah. um, and you don't associate a, a young girl or a pregnant lady with a criminal. But unfortunately, you know, um, that's very much possible.
2: Yeah. Well, well, it's funny because as you know, my daughter was born last week. And they, they have a big thing about or anywhere in the world about obviously child trafficking and and, like in and out of the the wards and that sort of stuff. And and they finally, I mean, my son was born two years ago. They didn't have this in place, and now they do. The sensor on a on a um, a band they put it around the baby's leg, so that if they walk out, if the baby leaves the premises, it locks all the doors now. But when you go when I mean when, when you go in and out of the ward, you obviously there's a camera system, and you need to go in. And the big sign saying no tailgating and and all that sort of stuff. And I was curious just to see how many people actually got stopped by a nurse or whatever for coming in and, and they actually stopped pretty much let's say 80 percent of them um to the point where i actually stood by the door and, they, and i mean i've been there say a few days in a row and got to know some of the nurses she looked at me and she said i know who you are but i can't you in unless you press the button and someone on the other side sees you and i was like gee that's that's really good training because most people are going oh i've seen you three three days in a row um, and I've seen you go into a woman's ward, you must be a dad. and must be okay. But I had to identify myself and all that kind of stuff. And I was, I was quite impressed with that because that's, you know, losing a child is probably the worst thing you could ever have. It happened to you. It was nice to know that, that they'd taken that stuff seriously.
1: And that's a great example of, of good training. Exactly. Cause they obviously had, um, a lot of awareness or campaigns around that and, and, and proper hands on training about the procedures, et cetera. And, the same applies in the in the call it digital cybersecurity world that yeah. um we can change behavior, you know, if we if if we explain to people why it's important. Mm. And I know our natural reaction would be to um do the polite thing or not ask questions, you know especially the, the, you know, the British are very polite, but yep. um, so it's our natural way of, of being, but you have to actually, and this is where I spoke about that um, heuristic thinking, you actually need to like take a breather and, yep. and then not just react naturally or instinctively, but actually think about it. And then there's a lot of these um, business email compromise scams that are making the rounds where um, in the bad guys sort of impersonate authority figures to get you to pay something to fraudulent account. And then again, the same happens. Like our natural response is, oh my gosh, the CEO is asking me to do something. I've better jump on that straight away. And um, so what they do is they, they get us to sort of circumvent our critical thinking and, and, you know, react quickly. Um, and especially there, we have to, and this is what I tell everybody, you know, if you that the number one thing in, in cybersecurity is actually to become more present. You know, it's like more mindful. Like take a breath. Take a breath. It only takes 10 seconds to get your amygdala to sort of out and then, yeah, you know, apply your cognitive, you know, your your um, slow thinking mind.
2: And and, and especially today, when, when you're at home all the time, well, you know, there, and you've kind of lost all your social skills. You're not picking up on those those um, subtle body language things. You you can tell if someone's a little bit shifty or a bit shady. Um, you definitely get out of practice. Uh, at least I I found that. All. But, yeah. Um how do you no, I agree <laughs> I mean Africa's a big continent I mean I can't remember how many countries they are, but I mean had you, you say you work through Africa have you found a different just in that little ecosystem uh, of different countries culturally how people handle uh social engineering
1: yeah so there are fifty four countries I think depending on uh, some of them you count and some of you know like um today Sudan like, so yeah. to and but I think it's 54. But um, yes, I think that there's a huge difference amongst the cultures. And I mean, it's like Europe, you know, like people say the, the Europe, but Europe is all these different countries that have different maturity levels, completely different cultures. The same applies in, in Africa. And for example, if you go to Mauritius, they actually, from a, from a cyber or digital kind of maturity level, they, they've really advanced. They've been rated as, I think, the sixth most secure um, country in terms of, you know, what the government has done. Yeah, they have really great regulation in place. Um, they, they're on this whole mission to make a, they call it the smart island, you know, so they yeah. the, they obviously, um, you know, put a lot of investment into education and um, technology in general. Um, whether, you know, on the ground, what is quite interesting, like, because um, we went there last year and... I was so impressed with what I read about Mauritius and then I asked the people on the ground, I said, yeah, you know, is it really like that? And they said, no, no, we've got the paper in place, but the enforcement is a different story, you know, <laughs> but, but still like, you know, it is, you know, compared to South Africa, even Mauritius is far ahead in terms of their regulative um, frameworks and what they've got in place. Kenya also is actually very um, mature in a lot of the um, you know, uh, sort of data protection regulation, et cetera. But then there are other countries that have absolutely nothing in place. Mm. Um, where, understandably, you know, you think, okay, they have bigger problems to cry like poverty, unemployment, war zones. So cyber security is not really high up on the agenda. But that makes it so dangerous, I think, because Africa, and this is something I'm, I'm personally quite, quite passionate about, is if we look at, you know, we currently have half a billion people that are. Online across the continent, and that number is going to double in the next two years. So we have half a billion people coming online, and um, most of them will be first-time users. Meaning, you know, they're not like in the developed countries where you grow up with computers. Um, no. They haven't, so they, they get a, a smartphone or a phone and they connect to the internet. They're now doing financial transaction. I mean, Sub-Saharan Africa is the region with the most financial transaction conducted on mobile devices, and that's not percentage-wise. So those are actual numbers in the world. Yeah. Um, and then you have that on the one side, you know, these unaware, often not English-speaking first-time users using their mobile devices, doing financial transactions, and on the flip side, there's no legislation in place across, you know, the continent. I mean, there's a handful of countries um, and cybercrime that's sort of shifting their attention towards emerging economies. They, they know that Africa is digitizing at a rapid speed. And um then, you know, with the sort of mobile kind of malware that's, that's in place, that is, that's something I, I'm, I'm scared about, but I'm also passionate about that we can do something about it. In fact, I'm, um, we're going to organize a, a panel discussion with a lot of the telcos, you know, MTN, Vodacom, yeah. um, Airtel, because they all have that, you know, they have that opportunity on the one hand side, but they also have a responsibility and a challenge to how do, how do we protect the consumers. Um, What's interesting, you know, the challenge that they have is, you now have smartphones that are often secondhand smartphones that they yeah. use. They still use feature phones. And a lot of the online banking is done through USSD, which is like a 20-year-old technology. Yeah. Um, and how do you protect old phones that they don't even have updates for anymore? You know, like, how, like it, it really is a challenge. Um, but I, I guess, you know, it, where there's a challenge and a will to solve, there's opportunity. Well,
2: I'm quite keen to help you out there wherever I can, so keep me in, the, in mind. And actually, I'm thinking of a friend of mine that you probably would need, would be good for you to chat to, um, which I will uh, introduce you to after this.
1: Oh, uh, yes, please, yeah.
2: Cause, cause he's Maybe you can while...
1: join our, t- our panel.
2: Oh, he loves to talk. He loves to talk, <laughs> no problem. Uh, but, he's, but he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's a great... Um, SME in the mobile space. So, so all those vendors, he knows people that, you know, he traveled, he showed me his profile the other day. He did, I think close to 250 um, speaking events across Africa, uh, in the mobile space. So he's he's been around knows knows people, you know, perfect for what you want to do. Um, and you probably scare you. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, but yeah, I think just, on that'd be great to to introduce you. Um, -hmm. so so going back to, to the education piece and, and the first, yeah, you know, those those first users, they they're not English speakers that. I mean, what what are you thinking? How, how you, I don't want to say how you're dumbing it down, but but you know, technology is very is like is, is like magic for people that don't understand it. Um and I'm, and I'm talking about an educated person that's you know been through they've worked with laptops and that kind of stuff. Now you've got someone who's never they've seen it maybe on TV if you're lucky. I mean, how are you feeling the your way into, into to educate them?
1: Yeah, uh, we have to just keep it simple, like simplify it to its most essential basic kind of message. And often that's actually about the behavior, you know. So, not so much necessarily about the technology or how these threats operate. It's more about, well, what can I do in my day to day life? Um, You know, what are the do's and don'ts, like not using um, jailbroken or rooted devices, you know, to to do that whole, hey, let me think before I click kind of thing. It's more of a behavior message. And that can be, you know, but that's also challenging on its own, you know, like people only change their behaviors. I mean, we only have one or two habits that'd be able to change a year, but, th- but this is really where I, I feel that um, collaboration between the governments and the industries need to assist to start with that kind of education at grassroots levels, like really in the schools already um, universities, um, and universities. Um, and, you know, something that was quite interesting, like low before have acquired a company called culture from Norway Also probably about two years ago, and they run like a culture survey across, um, I think 24 countries. Um, and the recent one was just released about two weeks ago. It's quite an interesting read. I'll, I'll send you the link. Please. Um, and in, yeah, and, and there they um, sort of, you know what they do is they measure what does security culture mean um, in terms of different dimensions. So there's seven dimensions that the sociologists have been measured, you know, uh, have been measuring for 30 years and they applied that to security. And that allows them to sort of compare different industries, countries against each other in terms of their maturity level. And what was quite concerning is that the education sector by far across all countries scored the lowest in terms of security culture. And that means that, you know, part of the dimensions is cognition, which means the level of understanding and awareness was pretty low, but also attitudes. So the attitudes of the people in the education sector towards cybersecurity was the lowest across all of them, you know, norms is sort of the behavior that, that, um, that's not sort of written down. It's just what we do that everybody does, but it's not in a policy or something. So they they scored pretty, you know, terribly across all of these dimensions. And I think that's concerning because, you know, a place of learning should be the first place that we sort of expose our children and the students to. And I, I think being digitally savvy or, cyber security aware is like a it's like a life skill. It's no longer something that is a nice to have. I mean, especially you know, talking about digital workspace and all of us working from home, doing online schooling. Um it's just something that we have to embrace more and we sort of um have a positive attitude towards not hey, well, next you're,
2: one. S- you're right. and As you're saying, I'm thinking more and more about kids going to school and and you know the amount of social media applications that I mean TikTok is probably the most popular one at the moment. And and people not realizing that I think there's a there's a movie on Netflix now that's that that um, I saw a link to about the social media creation and and
1: yes I also saw something yesterday
2: yeah I heard it. it's really good and and it's a, this whole thing and I think mean Kevin Kelly said it originally um, if you're not if you're not paying for it you're the product um, and that's and that's not just your data but that's you know access into systems or, or you know, real, um, real social engineering exercises. So it's a scary place if people don't know what they're doing. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And I mean, there is that notion that even though youngsters are, they know that their information is being, you know, that they're paying with their personal information and that it's being used as like a commodity and it's being traded and that they don't really mind because it's just the way of the way things are. But, um, you know, that all oh, the sharing kind of thing, but uh, there are other aspects to it that people really, sh- I think are not aware of yet at a, at like a mass scale That mm. we need to do more. Um, I, I mean, look, I think like in the UK, they have fantastic resources. There's the child net side that provides content to parents, kids, et- like par- you know, teachers, educators. Um, Australia has also done a fantastic job in sort of providing free and really good content to, um, you know, um, individuals, parents, as well as small SMB businesses and, and bigger organizations. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in South Africa and Africa in particular. I mean, I don't know if you saw that there was a, uh, an article just over the weekend about, I, I don't know who it was, some researcher who tried to contact the South African, um, cyber security hub, which is our CERT government CERT. Mm-hmm. And the email just went into like nowhere land. Like there was no, it, it, there was no response. Um, it just shows like that, that's something we have to assist the government with, you know, to build this capacity and and provide that support to the consumers and the people. Um, because, the, you know, it's meant to be there that if you have a, an incident or a problem that you can reach out to them and get support. Um, yeah. But it seems to not even be meant, you know, there's nobody behind that.
2: It, it, um, <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me being, you know, it's, it's one of those things that in South Africa, unfortunately, the, the corruption that exists is probably fine that, that, that money was spent elsewhere, that we're, we're taken elsewhere. But in the same token, I, mean, I had an issue here uh, many years ago, where we'd gone back to South Africa on holiday, come back and had a few letters to the door, where I bought five cars and someone had stolen my identity and managed to go and try and buy these cars. Um, and when I spoke to the first person, he said, oh, yeah, well, we, you know, there's a process they went through. They couldn't prove that they were you. So we obviously, we obviously logged it as a, a thing on their side. And I tried to get hold of the UK cyber police, I can not believe what they're called now. And, uh, yeah, that phone, that phone call never got answered either. So either, this, either there's so many cases that those people can't get to it or it's just another department that doesn't have the teeth to execute on. Um, I don't think it's just an African problem, let's, let's say it that way. Um,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's did funny. Did you get
1: your... Did, sorry? Sorry, did you... Did it, was it all resolved? Like, did you get it? Yeah,
2: so, so what I had to do, I mean, they they not only try to buy cars, they bought. They try to get credit uh, Credit cards, they try to get clothing accounts done. So I had to go through a whole big morale with um, uh, was it Equifax, Equinox, Equifax.
1: Um, yeah,
2: yeah, I go challenge all the transactions and I had to put a passcode on my, my credit profile, which, which still exists today. Um, and that was fine. It sort of, it took a while to sort it out, but it got sorted out, but they never got caught. So it's one of those things where, um, it created more pain and frustration and irritation for me than actually solving the problem of getting these guys. Um, and we, we kind of figured it out that what they did is we had cleaning service come in, um, and the usual keynote was six, so another one came for that, that day. And they must have grabbed a payslip off my desk or something like that. And then because we, were in, we, we weren't we in the, in the house every time they were cleaning, they somehow arranged to have my driver's license reissued. And then they just intercepted the, the new driver's license. And then um, we actually had to, the one car dealership actually had them communicating with them at the time. So that's why I tried to get the police involved. And he was asking them to keep providing more documentation, more proof of income and all that kind of stuff. And you could see that they'd taken a bank statement, but then the transactions weren't correct, but my bank details were, everything else was correct. So, they, you know, it was, it, was, it was quite clearly done, but because we were aware that it was that, you know, illegal, they weren't getting anywhere. And then we said, well, we'll just keep them busy uh, until, they get, until they give up um, because the cops aren't going to get involved. Um, and then, yeah, so, so the solution in the UK called CIFAS, TRFAS, um, which I can't remember what it stands, but basically it's a, um, you put a, a note that you, you've been impersonated, and then any time you go to get credit, um, they won't get you straight away. You have to go through the, through the phone call process. But then also having the passcode on the credit profile. Any time I try, like when I bought a new car two years ago, um, the dealer said, you've been declined. I said, no, no I haven't been declined, but you need to get your credit card a phone. The bureau, the bureau for me, and the oh, bureau no, will ask me, and then when I say yes, then they'll then they'll put it through. It's not better than they say, "Yeah, oh, that's no, it's because they stole my identity." So I think it's a good, you know, that is that is like you say, a life skill. I mean, that's what I wanted to go. That's a life skill. And I mean, my you know my kids are very young, and I, and I don't know if, how if you got kids how they are. But I, I look at my nephews, and that I mean, they on their on their devices. It happens every time I see them. But they're not really coached or worried about. In the information they're sharing on there, or um, you know, they've never mentioned that. Oh, you know, I need to have a passcode on my tablet because it secures it. You know, they don't have that sort of worry, and they really should. They really should value their data, and I think that's the underlying problem. Is that
1: yeah? Way. But that's the that's also the challenge for the parents. You know, like a lot of my friends, my, my kids are also still relatively young, so they don't we don't allow them tablets. <laughs> the, the harry six he's asking for one but uh, like I, I don't i want to delay it for as long as possible but um a lot of my friends who have all the kids they they also tell me look Anna, i have no idea like how do you set up parental controls i'd like to find out more about it but it's so complicated so how do we you know i mean they are concerned about it but i think that they're just overwhelmed especially um moms or dads that are that don't have any technical technical background that might even be aware of it, but they just then they lack that second step to okay, geez, so what what is it that we can actually do? And there is a lot that that one could do. And again, I think the opportunity is there to provide content and make it really simple and easy to understand. Um, I mean, my actually my mom in law, she said, yeah, I just want it on like a on my phone already. So when I need it, then I know where to go. Um, you know, like if I need a parental control for my grandchildren, then I on YouTube and I know I don't have to know Google that, even though it's easy, but for the granny, she just wants it one click and then you
2: do it, you know, with a few techie guys. And, and, and one of them has said that he's, he set it all up on his router, So, so that's where it happens. Um, but it's about, you know, no phones in the bedroom, no TVs in the bedroom. You know, when you go to bed at night, your phone charges downstairs. Um, yeah, you know, there's some content because, because I think a lot of these applications don't don't really have a content level sensitivity. So, so it doesn't really matter what you're saying on there, but you can limit the amount of time they spend on the app. Um, and that's probably where you've got to teach your kids as opposed to how the technology solves the problem.
1: We actually, a, a few years ago, I, I worked with um, Sandlam, and we did like a, you know, a sort of safe online at home page for their, for their employees, but <clears throat> obviously with, you know, for them to use it with their children. And one thing we created there was like a, like a family agreement. It's sort of a policy that the parent can then talk the kids through. And obviously, number one was, you know, don't ever meet anybody in real life that you haven't verified. You know, obviously, yeah. that's the number one thing. But then also talk about things exactly like you said, um, how much screen time, when and where, and then all the safety and security precautions. But in a very simple, it's just a one-pager that can be very... Um, Simple, plain English that parents can sit down with their kids and and talk it through.
2: That's great. You don't have. That was
1: quite successful.
2: You don't have to have a copy of that anyway that you could share because I think that'd be useful to share out.
1: Yeah. Yes, I, I, I'm sure I still find it. It might be a little bit dated now, but I think the principles are still the same. I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd like to say because I obviously get this group now, and and these are, as I say, you know, a bunch of tickies. Um, and and. I think that something as simple as that is, is the, the transformation page you need. You know, forget the technical tools, just have everyone... Yeah. And, and a six-year-old, I mean, it may not be rational... We don't rationalize it, but at least they know that they are discussing something with you to get what they want, but through, you know, a, a structure.
1: Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much opportunity. You know, like we had a... Last week, we did a round round roundtable discussion about the government and their challenges to digitize um, digitize sorry in South Africa, and there were quite a few, you know, like other tech companies represented. Amongst others, the guy from GovChat, I don't know how much you're aware of what they've done. They've actually
2: phenomenal. They
1: so so they during the actually before the pandemic already they created this communication channel by which. you know um, citizens can communicate with the government and instead of developing some fancy app they just sort of said well what are people using on their phones already and everybody's on whatsapp so they hooked into whatsapp and then during the COVID pandemic they used that to allow people to apply for grants um, verify their um, identity and all of it sort of without having to go anywhere and they, they grew massively i mean they had to within a few days i think scale I don't know how many millions of messages they got in, but you can imagine, you know, how many people applied for grants and yeah. that's such a beautiful success story when technology really helps the government to sort of, you know, jump ahead. Um, yeah. And so that discussion we had last week was then about, well, how, what are the other, like what else could be done? And obviously the government, we can't expect the government to have all the answers. So I, I just, I kind of just said, well, we, we should as an industry just club together and, Sponsor a hackathon and and sort of reach into the the youth and the talent to find ways to you know innovate. Um, And then a you're doing a couple of things you you're assisting the youth to think in the right direction and building capacity where it's needed. And I mean, one of the solutions that we brainstormed was we need a search, like somebody who mans the email address that nobody responds to when there's a security problem. (laughs) So we have to build up some security skills, which we obviously we don't have enough worldwide, but especially not in, in, in Africa, and then maybe come up with a way to, like the, the government guys have done, to automate a lot of the process that you can I don't know, possibly report something via WhatsApp and you get like a bot response back initially, like just doing the, whatever that might might be, but the idea is to really um, and, and you know, Trend Micro, BCX, another company, Novaful, we all sort of said cool, we're happy to sponsor it, and the UWC guys have a a bunch of students called the Digital Innovation Lab, sponsored by Samsung. They keen to, like, you know, provide the students and hook into WITS University. Um, so, you know, watch this space. There might be something cool happening. Um, I don't know. It's still very much in the infant, infancies. But, well, got to they, start you know, wherever you have challenges like that, yeah, you got to start. And they, I think there is so much opportunity. You know, there really is. Um, to do good and help with job creation. And and help the government, you know, build a better, more secure um, way of doing things. Well, well I, think, and I
2: think you're right. I don't think it's up to the government to solve the problem. Um, and I think that's a mentality problem in, in the culture of organisation, that, that people expect people expect the government to fix everything. And, and that's why the government doesn't get anywhere, because it's trying to fix too many things. And, I, and it's almost the, the Microsoft approach, where they'll do something to a level, and then they expect the partners to come and build on top of it um and it should be the same thing
1: yeah Yeah. no true and i mean they they don't have the skills either i mean if if we as an industry already can't find the skills how can a government organization you know you just have to collaborate more together
2: no i'm looking forward to see where that goes i mean when you when you think about the future i mean what what do you see that being for information security training or or getting people educated Mm -hmm
1: yeah well, i mean i i hope that um you know we'll see much more collaboration you know that's something that i'm i'm kind of driving um now in my new role i actually have the luckily i have like the scope for that you know as before i just you have like ideas but you don't have the time for it and now I'm, it's sort of part of my role to actually work with a different organizations so um i'm you know i'm very i guess very lucky that I've, I've put this new position now so i'm hoping that um you know, we also collaborate with like a Nigerian organization. Um, I think they call oh, Get Safe. I have to look it up. But they also offering like free security training to the SMB, um, SMBs in Nigeria. And our, we provide the social engineering training, you know. So so just obviously we have like our our product that we're selling to the, you know, the, to, yeah. to the corporate environment and the, the businesses. But with that comes a lot of. There's like a research arm and sort of freebies that we allow to sort of share that will help um, more social um, entrepreneurial organization to get on the ground. Um, And I think in the long long run, I would love to see the communications ministers or departments to make cybersecurity part of a curriculum at school level already not just at university, I think at a school level um, and both for teachers as well as, the, as well as the students to improve that at that level already. And another thing that I'm involved with, which I also think is very, very interesting is um, we've ran a, a survey across um, predominantly Kenya and South Africa, but there were also quite a few responses from uh, North Africa and West Africa. We, we had 450 teachers Responding, and the the question that we wanted to find out is how do we get more, particularly girls, attracted into the tech and the cybersecurity space? And the responses were really interesting because, like, some of the stuff that they said was a a quarter of the students actually don't have internet at home. So whatever we do needs to be available in the classroom or to the, the teachers to then somehow share with the students. And one of the things that they're looking for is you know success stories. So it's really other women, particularly African women, who've made a success of themselves in the tech sector, in the security space, and then, you know, have them share their stories and then with sort of guidance on how you can enter into that space. And, and that, again, I think is actually something that's very easily doable because you just ask, I mean, it's a sort of a plan. You just reach out to these um, women and ask them to record themselves for a few days, professionally edit it, um, you know, and then share that with the teachers, who can then in turn share it with the students, and hopefully inspire more girls to not just girls, but boys. But you know, obviously, that's one area we've that's sort of been identified that we don't have enough women in the industry, and, um, and particularly in Africa, we don't have enough security skills. So that that's something again that could be like a cool thing um, of capacity building by tapping into the youth. So yeah, that's that's yeah three. Well,
2: I think you've hit the, hit the nail on the head there. I think there's a, I don't want to say a sexist reviewer, but I, I don't think there's enough confidence or um, comfort that, that a, a young girl could go into cyber um, or you know, into a lot of male dominant dominated roles. Um, I'm actually talking to a friend of mine on Friday. Fair enough, he's a guy, but he's coming from a marketing background, and he's like, and he wants to do a a, a, um, a change. And he wants to go into cyber and he keeps saying, but I, you know, how can I go into cyber if I'm a marketing person? I haven't got the technical skill. And I said to him, but in fairness, most of your marketing skills are probably more, more tuned to cyber than, than your technical skills. Cause there's lots of, there's lots of technical guys, but but most information security breaches are, are based on humans doing things that they shouldn't have done.
1: Exactly. And we need communications people yeah, with a, with a marketing communications background. So he's actually high the mind you know, like every all of our customers need, um, like well, we call them campaign managers or security awareness managers, you know, and they much more prefer somebody with a communications, change management, marketing background than a technical person. Yeah. So yeah, that there's you can train a CV if you want.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. With you um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, because I mean, and I think that's the thing is is, is, is it's one of those industries that's young enough that the more diverse your background is, the stronger your capabilities are versus, say, banking, where you've done it the, done it the same way for 10 years, Um not really changed too
1: much. Yeah. And I think that's also the feedback that some of the, t- the teachers um, gave is uh, that make it cool, you know. And, I mean, look, I mean, we've been working security for many years. We think it's cool. Like, I thought it was super cool back yeah. in the day. But I think that the, maybe for the mainstream, it's not cool enough. So we have to find a way of making it really attractive to – like
0: young girls. <laughs> yeah,
1: I in <laughs> um,
2: bad, bad, bad hacking movies where they they see someone type five things on a screen, and all of a sudden they're inside a bank, and it's and it's it, you know they think it's that easy, but meanwhile it's yeah, not- it
1: would be pretty cool
2: if it was like that. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty <bad> bank. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so um, I mean, what, what are your so with your new role. I mean, it started in September, you know, what, what are your sort of plans for the for that in the future? Is that still being figured out?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is still very new, um, but so like I mentioned at the beginning, I love research. So, uh, and um, you know, we have the, the the culture company from Norway who do they really do fantastic work, and they have like a, a professor called um, Gregor uh, Petrich, Petr, Petr, I think it is, and he's um, you know, he's like a, a like the guru of um, sort of assessments and doing social studies. So it, it's really amazing to tap into that and work with them and collaborate across other industries to see, well, you know, what kind of research can be conduct together to, um, you know, make, make the, like create the right content, make um, the right decisions in terms of um, not just as now before as a product, but for the market, you know, and it's like this thing we're doing now with the, the teachers that it is, it's not really productive driven. it's more about, the bigger kind of story. And um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to those kind of pro, um, projects. And then I'm heavily involved on the content side. So really going back to how I started, you know, I started with creating content um, and that's just something I, I love. You know, I just put my earphones on and create um, training concerts, like, you know. Um, so that's sort of what i'm I'm looking at in terms of like new products, what is really interesting or fascinating that we're working on is um to find a way to provide um you know suggestions of content on an individual level based on the security culture that they are at so if somebody has a low attitude for example, what kind of content could we provide that will help better that you know yeah. and then with sort of AI engine in the background that will then automatically suggests the right kind of um, content. So that is, I, I think from a strategy long, the long road um, we'll be going. And I think that's also really fascinating. To yeah.
2: I mean, I mean, and that comes back to the Netflix analogy, um, quite well. Hey, I mean, do you want to give us a, maybe, maybe a, an insight to how you started? Cause I mean, your, your background is you know, very similar in the sense of dimension data, or, cause I was there as well. And, and you know, you're an auditor, which I've, I've never been an auditor. But I've been audited many times. For, for information security stuff. Um, but how did you get into to starting your own business and, and getting more by over for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I started at, at Dimension Data as a security, um, sort of the link between the engineering team and the sales team, like a product manager initially at Internet Solutions, actually, and then moved more into security consulting and architecture and also auditing <laughs> um, over, over the years. And then I think... Pretty early on, I realized that a lot of our customers didn't do enough for their users. You know, they would have had like a poster up somewhere, pretty lame one. You know, and that that was it. Yeah. And um, then, and as a as a child, I always I was always drawn into drawing cartoons. Like that was like my thing. And um, when we went on honeymoon, I did like a whole I drew a whole storyboard of these characters called fraudy skim bag and on your data that I, I came up with that do like, they do little schemes and, you know, steal, um, information, etc. And, um, I showed the, the storyboard to old mutual at the time where I was based on side more as a fun kind of thing. And they just, they liked it. They said, "Oh, Anna, you should do this. And by the way, you should like do six modules and you have to create a, a learning management system, which I had no idea at the time. It was literally just a, Hey, look, here's a few drawings and, an idea. And then um luckily I was already a contractor at Dimension Data. So whatever I did was sort of my intellectual property. And that's how it started. So it was literally of mutual guiding me into what they wanted or needed. And then from there it grew like, you know, then I went to Salam and they liked it. And it, like sort of the companies I dealt with, and it, the idea became a business probably about two years later. Um, so I was still working for Dimension Data and just doing this on the side.
2: Yeah. And
1: then, um, in 2014, actually when my, my first son was born and then I, um, my only son, I only have a son and a daughter my first child. <laughs> <laughs> then I went full time and just did, just did popcorn.
2: Yeah. That's a
1: great
2: story. And then how did the, yeah, how did the Nova cool. 4 connection come into this?
1: Yeah, that was also quite a coincidence or I don't know, like um, we managed to somehow ma- make it onto Gartner Magic Quadrant. you know, they I think they liked the approach because I, I took a very simplified story-based approach and you know, I really wanted to um, bring security across in a simple way that non-techie people can understand it and make it memorable as well by using stories. And um, we then also got uh, through a local customer, Cecil, they kind of said, oh, they can't use cartoons, you have to li- use live action video. And sort of got into the whole production side of things and that put us on the map. So Gartner, you know, like that, that, we were in the Gartner Magic Quadrant and um, obviously, you know, before, you know, being a much bigger uh, American um, company, they, um, um, at the time, like the Gartner analyst actually moved from Gartner to Nober and he knew us and knew you know, our content and through that connection, you know, they reached out and said, look, can we work together? Or, and then they just dropped the bomb. I can't be you. And it was in wow.
2: 2017.
1: And <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I
2: always love to hear a South African success story. So that's great to, great to hear. Um,
1: yeah, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, that's been, you know, I couldn't have wished for a better acquisition partner, I guess. You know, they really, they've grown from strength to strength and they have such an amazing um, leadership and, and strategic outlook um, and incredible people, you know, working with, and the research team in Norway, and, you know, it's really such an honor. So it's, it's awesome being in that field right now.
2: Fantastic, fantastic. Absolutely, at the time, maybe we're closing up. So is there anything else you would want to cover? Or?
1: No, no, it's, it's fine. I, I, like I think my, my kind of main message is always about, um, you know, Africa and, and finding a way to collaborate between the taco industry and um Governments as well as the rest of the industry to help the consumers because they need that. You know, so that is sort of maybe the closing kind of thought to find ways to work together on solving that challenge.
2: Great, no, thank you. Um, What's the best way if you want to get a hold of you or follow you on on something like Twitter or LinkedIn
1: to, to do that? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn um, as well as Twitter I'm, I'm on, on both platforms. I'm I'm not great at Twitter. I must say I'm actually better on LinkedIn. <laughs> Perfect. But, uh, but you've you reached me on, on both platforms. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank
2: you very much for your time today. It's been great to a conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you, Ryan. No, it's been awesome.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.